and welcome back to another episode of Adventuring Academy, the vodcast where we talk about all things tabletop and how you can best have a fun time with you and your pals at your table. My name is Brendan Lee Mulligan. I'm your humble dungeon master. Today, our guest, oh boy, oh boy, do we have a titan within the gaming sphere here, a champion of TTRPGs. I'm gonna I'm gonna start listing this CV, and it's gonna take me a second because this is one of my favorite people in games uh, who has done so much to better the hobby. Founder and director of I Need Diverse Games, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping bring more diversity into the world of gaming, as well as a diversity liaison for GamerX, and who was recently part of ATTN.com's unfinished business event, even getting tweeted by Arnold Schwarzenegger, what? Uh, you know her, you love her. Uh, she is Celise on Rivals of Waterdeep, the official D&D actual play show, uh, and a producer there as well. Uh, she is also the creative director of Into the Motherlands, a brand new tabletop RPG funded by Twitch and led by an entirely black and POC cast, crew, and creative team. You know her, you love her, one of my favorite people in the world, and a real-life IRL paladin, Miss Tanya DePass! wild. <laughs> the crowd goes wild. Tanya, thank you so much for being here today. You're so welcome. I need you to like follow me around and be like my hype man. <laughs> of course, once it is safe to do so, but oh my god, that was like the most hype intro I've ever had in my life. Uh, a hype intro, deservedly, from uh, your incredible CV. Tanya, we are so happy to have you. Uh, and additionally to all of that stuff, Tanya is, of course, one of the first and most influential figures who has, came and consulted on Dimension 20 in the very, very beginning and gave us so many like recommendations and hooked us up with so many people, including people that now like work for the show pr pretty much like full time. Like we uh, we are working with Carlos Luna, who, used, who was uh, like one of the OG DMs for Rivals of Waterdeep, mm -hmm. Orion Black, who now works as one of our post editor supervisors, uh, like so many great people. Uh, and by the way, Dimension 20, very much not alone in that. Tanya has hooked up so many uh, games and spaces and shows within the tabletop community. Uh, and it's just a figure for light and justice and a wonderful human being. Uh, uh, so happy to have you today. Uh, uh, Taya, how are you doing? You must be, I, we haven't talked about this, but you must be so incredibly busy right now, not only with Rivals, but let's just jump right into uh, oh the incredible new show system game that you are not only the creative director for, but actively playing in. Talk to us mm -hmm. about Into the Motherlands. What is it and how can we watch it? Oh boy, there's so much to talk about. Um, so Into the Motherlands, um, you know our buddy B. Dave Walters? He is our lead developer. And B. Dave and I have discovered that when our brains are in sync, it's kind of frightening. <laughs> Because, you know, like, when you when you are on the same path with your buddy and you just sit there and you have that moment of, that sounds good, that sounds dope, I was thinking the same thing. And we had that as we sat down and kind of hammered out the the main conceit of the story we wanted to tell in, in this world setting. Um, so the, the short version is I was working with Twitch on some things, I pitched some things, they came back and said, well, there's already plenty of fantasy, there's already plenty of, you know, fantasy RPG shows. What about sci-fi? What about telling your own story? And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. And they're like, here, here's your budget. Here's your timeline. Here's when we want all of our content. And it was framed in terms of hours of content. So it wasn't like you must do like 
this in-depth interview. There was no control of what the content is other than producing the show. And so the people I've been reaching out to and in talks with before I knew what exactly was going to work with Twitch, I said, okay, here's the deal. Here's kind of what's on the table. Are A, are you interested? B, are you available? Because as we know, getting people together for projects like Wrangling Cats. <laughs> and um, once we had everybody that was available and, and figured out what it is they wanted to do, because some people like to DM, some people like to play, some people also develop, or they like to do all three. And so it was kind of figure out what role everyone fit. And, you know, after some back and forth and many emails, as I'm sure anyone watching this has managed a project knows, um, so, okay, here's our set of developers. Here's our cast. Um, our friend, uh, Pleasantly Twisted, Vanessa, is our lead artist. Uh, another friend of mine who does a lot of art and is doing his own Afrofuturist comic that he kickstarted is doing the cover art specifically. And um, our friends over fandom, because Dave was like, well, if we have to build a system from scratch, it's going to take a lot longer than we have. And so, I mean, no joke, if you've ever done your own homebrew, if you've ever, like, tried to make your own thing in RPGs, the for me, the stumbling block is always, okay, what are the mechanics? How is this going to work out? Do we make people roll for every little thing? Do we just use an OGL thing that's out there or build our own thing? And so he was already uh, working with the folks at Fandom, and he said, let me see how they feel about letting us use Cortex, which wasn't out when we started this whole process. And they were down to support us. They were like, here, here's the book. Here's how you can make it your own. And so we had mechanics. We had cast and crew. And then we just said, okay, what are the stories that we don't want to see when we sit down to play RPGs? Because, you know, we're, we're a crew of Black and people of color, and we always get the stories that are like, we don't exist, or if we do exist, we're evil. There's a history of colonialism, of slavery. We're like, okay, all that out the window. We're, no, that does not exist here. And so I had an initial idea of like, it's somewhat in the future, and you know, maybe just we got fed up with the state of the world, and a select group of folks were like, deuces, I'm out. And I mean, considering the state of actual 2020, it wouldn't have been far-fetched. Um, I mean, because honestly, if the chance came, I'd be like, if I can still do the work I do but not be here, I'm down to go. Um, but he's like, you know, have you ever heard of Mansa Musa? And I'm like, no. And, and meanwhile, I'm like to the side Googling frantically because history is my worst subject. And... He was like, you know, he's the richest dude ever, and you know, he's African, and and he said there, there, it's true history that he sent a, uh, I keep wanting to say convoy, a fleet of people to the Americas that never made it. It's like, what if those people wound up on this planet that we're making up? Wow, wow, that's so cool. And it's uh, it's it's just like, huh? And it's just like they're here and. They, you know, hand-wavy, timey-wimey BS. They are on this planet instead of making to the Americas. That is so damn cool. And very, it feels, number one, very up the alley of B-Dave, who is one of the most, just a human, a, a walking encyclopedia of lore mm -hmm. uh, across disciplines. B-Dave is one of the most brilliant people I've ever taught. Anytime I've ever spoken with him, you walk away and you're like, did I just like get three credit, like three semester credits from just talking one conversation <laughs> with B-Dave? Um, yeah. 
that's so amazing. And I think what's incredible about Into the Motherlands, just from watching the initial, like, like tune in for the session zero and session one and two, by the time this uh, uh, our like conversation comes out, probably there'll be a couple more weeks of, mm -hmm. of uh, sessions coming out, is this idea of people that want to go check this out, you are getting in on the ground floor of something really incredible. Again, this is not just another actual play show. This is a new setting. It is a system that we are seeing for the first time, modded out and made personal to the setting and to the players. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you guys are truly expanding this new and imagined world for the first time, like you're saying, with new artists, with new players. So it's really, really exciting because you're watching an actual play grow step by step with a mm. system to support it and with a setting element that is being created around it. It's like one of the most exciting projects that I can recall from the last couple of years in terms of how holistic it is with you all moving forward. Um, let me let me dig down into the specifics of it. Um, <laughs> So it started. So it started with a conversation with Twitch and about you guys kind of going to this new place together. Um, how do you, as a creator, for people watching at home that that have their own stories they want to tell that are inspired by what you guys are doing with Into the Motherlands, like, it? What are the challenges of having to? like spin a world from your imagination while you are modifying a system. And let's not forget producing a show, which has a mm -hmm. whole, so in other words, you have three plates going, which are like narrative mechanics and logistics going at the same time. What is that like to balance? And, and what has that process been like working with your collaborators over the past couple of weeks and months? Um, it's been interesting because, you know, like everyone involved and in, you know, to, to back up a little bit, uh, Twitch also didn't say here, here's this like one famous brand person you must include. They're like, no, you pick the team, you do all of this, here's your funding. There wasn't like a, we have to do X, Y, Z because Twitch said so. And there wasn't a pressure to conform to anything. So I was able to, to go through everyone that said, yes, I'm down for this and go, okay, here's your role. This is what you said you wanted to do. And it's been great and collaborative. And, you know, these are all people I admire and, and don't normally get to work with, or we get to do one thing here and there. Like Christina, our friend, Christina Ariel. I adore this woman. I love her deeply. And we finally get to do a show together. And it's so fun because she's getting to do a character she normally doesn't get to play. I get, we get to play off each other really well. And the, and it's been good. Like we're using all the things that everyone has now come to hate: Slack and Discord and emails. <laughs> I mean, come on how how many times have you seen a Zoom meeting on your calendar and you're like, oh god, here we go. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's just been great because everyone is like, because we know each other, and yes, we're friends. And and normally I would have the hard and fast rule of don't work with your friends because there are some people you can work with. There's some people you can have a beer with, but not work with. We're all very fortunate in that everyone has, has been good about checking in and being collaborative. There have been nights spent in the Discord writer's room with me and Eugenio and uh, Gabe James, Gabe Hicks, I keep wanting to call his, his internet name, uh, and you know uh, Jasmine Bular, who's who wrote the adventure we're doing on stream. Um, and just going, okay, here's this idea. What about this? What does this feel like? 
are you okay with this? And and I've never had that kind of collaborative workspace on a project before. I've also not been the one where people go, well, you're the one signing off. Is this really okay? And it's so empowering to tell someone, I love that idea, go run with it. Or, eh, that's, that's not quite where we were. That's not what I was thinking. How about this? And have people go, okay, cool. And then come back with, I see where you were going. And it's just, it's weird and it's a little heady to be totally in charge of a thing, but also have the input and trust of so many awesome people. Hell yes. That is so true and such a gift and so awesome. But yeah, that, that, um, there was a great, I had a great old directing teacher who said a great piece of advice about being the director of any creative endeavor, whether it's an actual play show, a movie or whatever, that so much of artistic projects is about finding your people, finding your mm -hmm. team. And that under ideal circumstances, like if you have done that first and most necessary job well, the answer to every question gets to be a yes, where it's like, yeah. hey boss, does this work? And you're like, yes, that works. You were the exact right person for this job. Well done. Yeah. Like that there is, and when it doesn't work, that there is this fluidity of non-judgment of everyone knows that we want the best thing for this project. And any tweaking or, or moment where we need to rethink something is always being done like with everyone wanting the best for the overall yeah. outcome of the project. Um, so incredibly cool. Um, so the uh, uh, you you you're talking with Dave. Um, you guys are putting your heads together. You get this idea for this setting. Um, uh, uh, the, the I feel like I always have the funny thing in terms of Dimension Twenty, where there's that moment where you have to shoot from like galaxy brain, like. Okay, we're talking yeah. with Twitch, we're getting logistics together, stuff like that. And then you're like, oh, I gotta finish my character sheet. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about the character that you play on the show. And and what was that? How was, um, in the midst of all the like, being the creative director and putting the show together, uh, what was it like getting into those like character relationships and oh getting into God. those details? Um, so one thing we did, because like Dave and I, and, and most of us that are involved in this, you know, like we we play D&D, we play other games, and we wanted to very specifically get away from the constraints of, of both race and class. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like uh, Gabe Hicks actually has written a really good guide on 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 looking at, at building a character and not tying it to those things. And so we went with cultures and professions. And no one culture is tied to any one profession. And because I wanted to very specifically like really turn things on their head. I picked the the very smart hyenas that we created called the, called the hyena lay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they we wrote them as like the culturally, they're the, they're the super smart ones. They're the engineers. They're the doctors or the lore keepers or the scientists. But she wants to be a fighter. Her name <laughs> is Invicta. And she's like, cool, I, I'll study about fighting, but... I don't want to spend my life in a lab. I don't want to go be an engineer. I, none of this appeals to me. And um, she she is someone who you know, like has had to deal with, you know, her own people kind of giving her that, what do you think you're too good for us to like to study and and do these things? Or are you or are you just trying to like I don't, I don't want to say be one of the boys, but like she is rough and tumble. She likes to fight. She likes weapons. She will study, but she will spend her time studying like 
how do you like you know how did people make blades like 500 years ago how do or i have this technology and i have this like baseline knowledge of engineering and weaponsmithing how can i make a blade just for me and she's very much always trying to prove herself and she knows how to people but she doesn't know how to people well and it's been very interesting because um dj knight his character um is is one of the professions called a bio-priest, and he's uh, Musalian, which is a descendant of Mansa Musa's people who arrived there 2,000 years prior. And our characters just kind of mess with each other, mesh well with each other. But then we have Christina's character, who is an android mm-hmm. and does not know how to people. <laughs> um, well, her character walks on the ship and is like, well, I'm the captain now. We're all like, what? What do you mean you're the captain now? <laughs> and... And like our characters so far have kind of butted heads, but then she has these amazing vulnerable moments mm-hmm. where you see her, where the human side of, of Silent 919 comes out. And of course, as a character, I don't know this, I'm on the other side of the ship or I'm somewhere else, but as a player, I get to watch this and just have that my heart moment. Um, but it's, it's so great because I get to be a character. I get to be kind of a hard ass. I get to be this you know the world i'm gonna get the world before the world gets me character which i don't get to normally do mm-hmm. yeah uh beautiful i love that name for that archetype i'm gonna get the world before because that's what that cynicism is all about that like classic like cavalier warrior rough and tumble thing that's uh, uh what a great archetype and especially in a sci-fi setting that just sounds so cool and again like you're painting this picture of this constellation of very different characters, which is like the strength of the kind of ensemble storytelling that Mm -hmm. action play is sort of best at doing. Um, That is so, so awesome. Um, uh, To talk a little bit about, um, uh, to move from the narrative to start talking a little bit also about the mechanics. Um, uh, what, uh, What drew... Uh, you as a creative director and sort of the show in general to Cortex Prime and what was the process like of kind of, and I think this is something that a lot of younger GMs, people who tell the stories for the first time, uh, uh, it's one of those things that I think takes a little bit of time for a person to get proficiency in the language of tabletop mm. to the point where you really see where the rubber meets the road in terms of mechanics and narrative, where you start to go like, oh, I see how that interacts. Like, um, even you mentioning Gabe Hicks before, by the way, if people don't follow Gabe Hicks, go follow Gabe Hicks. Uh, uh, His culture and backgrounds uh, release is so brilliant and everything that he's released is so brilliant. Um, And you see immediately how that, those series of mechanics immediately makes for better storytelling. Like even, you know, D&D 5e moving to emphasizing backgrounds mm-hmm. as an important mechanical, I remember the first time, uh, much like yourself, I have a fondness for paladins deep in my heart. And I remember making a paladin in 5e and looking at backgrounds, which were kind of not anything in 3.5, yeah. and being like, wait a minute, I can pick any background with any class, so I could be a paladin? with the criminal background and it's like oh that's immediately 
such a more interesting to, to do what you're talking with Invicta of like, yes, this is my background, but it, that is a story about where I'm coming from, not necessarily about where I'm going. Right. Uh, yeah, it's 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 been fun because all, and and especially with creating the hyena hyena hy, I'm gonna mess it up hyena lay <laughs> it's they're still new I'm getting there we actually Gabe wrote a pronunciation guide and I I still mess it up every week um, but you know like how you know in D and D and other fancy things like the non humans are usually aggressive they're evil you know our our usual old saw of the of the orcs. And so in creating them, I wanted to have, have people think of an animal that is usually thought of as savage, as not bright, is just out there hunting and tearing things apart. It's like, no, they're the smart ones. They're the ones that first made contact with these humans that found themselves on this strange planet and helped them integrate. And like the technology you're using, it's thanks to them. Mm-hmm. And so she's smart. It's it's not like, oh, she decides she wanted to be a fighter, so she's immediately stupid. She could also, I could have also decided to like be a medic. I could have also decided to be um, a class that no one picked, but we we've written up it that Dave wrote up specifically is a judician. I could mm-hmm. decided I wanted to be a lawkeeper. Not that IRL that appeals to me, but it's there because society still needs laws. Um, but again, that would have all been against type of what you'll see as hyena lay as their culture. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's uh, uh, extremely well put and true. And I think that that uh, uh, is a beautiful segue as well to talking about um, uh, uh, some of the awesome work that you've done, um, both as the founder and director of I Need Diverse Games, you know, like an incredible wealth of resources online that you have made available on social media or through your organization. Um, and especially this this unfinished business event that I'd like to talk about a little <laughs> bit uh, uh, here as well. You got retweeted by Arnold Schwartz, the Terminator, uh, uh, retweeted uh, into the motherlands. Incredible. Um, uh, but uh, I also want to talk about, because uh, we've talked a lot about this before in the past, um, Talking about your work with I Need Diverse Games and making tabletop a more inclusive space mm-hmm. um, and where you see the hobby is still lacking and where you think the best direction for this hobby is to go. Um, the hobby is still lacking in that a majority of the actual play shows we see a lot of the people that are out here, like the people that are seen as the top folks in the industry is still very overwhelmingly white and male. And, you know, it, that's not a knock on white men, but, you know, it's when pe- whenever someone goes, oh, I want to start GMing or I have a question about something, without fail, they'll they'll tag in or they'll mention, like, you, either Matt, Lillard, I'm sorry, any of the three Matts, Lillard, Mercer, and I'm forgetting the other Matt's last Colville. name. Right, so we have three mats that will get tagged in. Rarely do people think about someone like Quiddy, Abria, or Satine Phoenix, or Jasmine, or um, Dave. Dave, I feel, is like kind of an outlier because I feel like he gets tagged in a lot, especially if it's about vampire, not D&D or whatever. But without fault, people still just, and I don't know if it's a cultural shift that needs to happen, but there's always a default. Oh, you want help with D&D? You want help with RPGs? Here's this plethora of white dudes that I think are masters of the trade. 
and they don't say the same thing about us. And, you know, I go to conventions whenever we can do that. But like last year, all the things that I went to, Hex Unplugged, Gen Con, OrcaCon, which has a mission of diversity and inclusion, but is held in Seattle, still overwhelmingly white and male. And it's getting better, but very slowly. But there's the other side of it. Our hobby is expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, all the books I see on your shelf, all the books I see on my shelf, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in my case, a lot of the books on my shelf that you can't see because I have a background up. A lot of them were either at this point now given to me, I've worked on them. But if I wanted to go out and buy all the books on my shelf, we're looking at a few hundred, maybe into the thousands because books are not cheap, especially when you get into super nice editions and luxury dice and all of these things. And, you know, you don't need to go out and have like a $150 set of dice, a $200 dice tray to start playing, but there's still an access issue. And, you know, while digital is nice, some people still charge almost full price for a digital edition of the same book. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about how are we giving people access to, to start running games, you know, things like seminars, things on learning how to GM are still costly. And, you know, people are doing stuff, but we got to eat too. So I can't just give away literally all of this content. But, you know, there, there's there's no happy medium of somebody wants to learn a GM. Somebody wants to learn how to write games. Someone wants to know, like, how just how do I, like, make a homebrew item? As something as simple as that. There's There's this just not seeing anyone than the usual white dudes as masters of the trade. And that's where I think we need to... We need to change. Um, the day before we were talking, um, Felicia Day just did a great panel on women or GMs too. Mm-hmm. And it was very amazing to see because, you know, these are four industry leaders. Well, three, because Felicia. Felicia apparently has never DM'd, which I didn't realize. Um, but you're seeing these industry leaders and it's like, okay, cool. I'm very glad Felicia had this panel and this talk, but... I want to see Satine on a panel with Gen Con about how to DM, not just I'm a woman in the industry. I want to see Jasmine rocking out whatever it is she's working on, running Green Knight or, or whatever she's interested in and having her do that on something like Dimension 20, guesting again on Critical Role and having it be because of who she is versus people jumping to, oh, well, you only got to this thing because you know someone or you're a diversity case, or people remembering, oh, it's February, we should remember Black people exist. It's March, we should remember women exist. It's June, queer people exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all these people that I'm naming are all amazing game masters and designers, and their names should come up too, and not just all the other people. And, And what we can do is talk to people about their craft, not just who they are. I think that is uh, 100% right. Uh, my mom uh, was a uh, comic book writer and author and was saying, it, the sad thing is, was saying a version of this back in like the 90s when I was a kid. She was like, mm-hmm. I, she's like, if I never do another women in comics panel as long as I live, I'll be fucking grateful. Like, just being yeah. like, like, put me on the panel about the thing I'm interested in. Even like uh, uh, Rekha Shankar, who played in 
Blood Keep, Escape from the Blood Keep, one of our, our side quests, incredible college humor, one of the best sketch writers in the world, one of the funniest human beings in the world. I love Rika with all my heart. Uh, she wrote this incredible sketch uh, of, about Jilly Jonka, this like magical candy person who was with like the Slugworth character. You can go look it up on the College Humor YouTube channel. But basically this like magical candy maker who only received press questions about what it was like to be a woman of color working in the magical candy industry. Oh my God, I it's love it. a brilliant sketch. But to, exactly to your point, the whole thing of like, you're not gonna ask me any questions about how to make magic candy? I only get the questions about, um, uh, which is like, uh, there is something very, the sketch is very, very funny, but it makes a really poignant point about like, who do we see as these kind of like default, like, oh, that's an authority on the craft versus people who are a expert in like a niche part of the craft rather than being seen as a full, full participation, like go to this person with your question about how you homebrew a magic item, how you do any of that stuff. And I guarantee you, again, a lot of these people like, there is no, there is no question that I would be an authority on that B. Dave probably couldn't give a better answer on. There is, you know, like for real. Um, uh, so I think that is uh, incredibly poignant and, and accurate. Um, you as an individual and as a creator, and it also you through your organization, do a tremendous amount of work, like moving the hobby in this direction. And as you're saying, it's like, it is changing, but very slowly, too slowly. Um, mm. uh, and there is so much more to do. So uh, what I would say is anyone watching this right now who is a fan of Dimension 20, go check out Into the Motherlands. Go <laughs> check out <laughs> Rivals of Waterdeep. These are incredible streams that do amazing, amazing work. Um, uh, and again, are exemplar are, are exemplary for actual play bar none for uh, for these systems bar none um yeah and, and since we're talking about it you know i i i know that i've griped with some people and i've griped about it on on twitter and other places is that especially when it comes to to rivals is that people rarely talk about the the strength of our show and the people who are on it and the story we tell it's all i whenever we see a spike in activity it's always I can't find black people who play D&D. What are the diverse D&D shows? I want Critical Role, but black. And I'm just sitting here like, we're in our eighth season. You mean to tell me that in all this time, especially up until this season, being on the official D&D Twitch channel, I, you know, I'm not quiet on Twitter. We share stuff. Sharif puts out clips between episodes. We've all done stuff besides rivals. We've all got rivals in our, you know, in our Twitch bios. You know, our our buddy Matt Mercer has been very lovely in sharing out some of our tweets. So it's not like we're hiding. And the and the the whole point of putting together rivals wasn't let's have D and D but but all brown people. It was let's show everyone can learn to play, especially with five E being newer. Mm -hmm. And we had people of every skill level. Some people had never rolled a D20 until we sat on stage at uh, Stream Many Eyes June 2018 to people that have been playing since first edition. So that was the whole point of showing it. But we just get pigeonholed as the diverse D&D &D show. And it's like, we've got amazing people on our cast and crew. Like crew, we are our own crew. We don't have the money to pay a producer. But you know what it 
especially now being remote, we've got to do even more. We can't just show up in the studio. We've got to stream it ourselves, do post-production ourselves. And we're not just the Brown D&D show, especially like with Tales of the Mist being, you know, finishing up. There's Dicey Amazons. There's Plot Hunters. There's our uh, Awadi is doing Tres Albes. There's so much going on. Or conversely, people can only ever name rivals as the diverse show. Come watch our show. We're fun. We're funny. Hell yes. Uh, uh, that, I can personally vouch for that. There's some, <laughs> I mean, like the, uh, uh, so many, I've like so many of your cast members, um, uh, especially like the uh, Sharif and Carlos. Uh, there's like uh, Latia Jaquise, who is incredible. Um, uh, there are amazing, amazing cast members. Uh, your guys' storytelling is phenomenal. And uh, there's like a, and again, like you guys, this is, you're, you're hosted on, you're like an official D&D, you partner with uh, Dungeons & Dragons. So you guys are, are uh, uh, an incredible stream that I cannot recommend highly enough. If you'd like Dimension 20, you would like Rivals of Waterdeep, go check them out. Um, uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, going into uh, the work you've been doing. Uh, uh, I also wanna talk a little bit, go, circling back to something we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, uh, what originally drew you and B. Dave to Cortex Prime as a system and going back to that idea of like, you know that you're gonna be launching this new show. You know you have this new narrative world for it. You have people making new players. Um, what is the process like of alighting on a set of mechanics? And it sounds like from your description that you guys went to, you had the world and the narrative in mind and then went to the mechanics, which is really interesting because I think it takes a level of confidence in your ability as just a tabletop player writ large to go like, yeah, I have a story and I'll make the system fit. Because a lot of new players kind of take the system as like word of God of like, well, the game tells me this is what a sorcerer is like. I'm not gonna disagree with that. Like I'm gonna sort of go by the book. Mm -hmm. um, you guys started with your world. Um, what was it like? What sort of drew you to Cortex Prime? And what was it like uh, uh, looking at the mechanics and making it fit the exact story you wanted to tell? Um, well, you know, a lot of that credit goes to Dave because he'd been working with fandom previously. Like I didn't, like I, I had done a little bit of consulting, but I, I didn't know that Cortex was like ready to kind of hit the shelves at that point. And and Dave, having worked with them and having seen kind of like the way it works, so just so people know, the Cortex Prime system is a dice pool system. It's not like the systems we know where it's a D6, a D20 determines your success or failure. So let's say you're a character and you get in a situation and you're like, okay, well, I have a specialty in engineering. So if I'm on a ship and something happens, oh, this is an engineering problem. So if you put a lot of points in that, you would roll anywhere from a D4 to a D12. There are no D20s in Cortex, which is going to dismay a lot of people because <laughs> um, we're all used to D20 systems. Uh, but let's say you maxed it out a D12. So you would have a D12 for your knowledge. That is your specialization. Whatever your cultural background is, that gives you something. So if, you're, if you are more aligned with your cultural background, maybe you've got a D8 or D10 in that. So that's a possibility of 20 points right there that you could roll. And the situation comes for it like if it's a 
super intense situation I'm, and I'm pulling from my character sheet. Um, so like if, if, Oh no, if I don't solve this, the ship could explode. So you say, Oh, I've got eight or a six in intensity. So that's three dice. And you know, if you're using a plot point or if you pick something um, called an asset where let's say you have a tool specific to this ship. So that gives you a D68, whatever the book says. So now you've got a pool of four dice and the storyteller, DM, whatever phrase you use, rolls their dice pool. They say, okay, well, you've got a challenge rating of 10. So of these four dice, you roll them, you pick the two highest, and hopefully you you beat it because of, uh, matching it goes to the to the storyteller DM. So it and then you are narratively saying how you succeed or fail. Mm-hmm. So uh, Sunday was not great for most of us as characters. And <laughs> I, I I joked that I was like, I've got all these dice. I'm going to roll once and then it happens. So don't put things in the ether that you don't want to happen. Um, and I got a chance to kind of narratively go through the dismay and the, oh, we're going to fail this. I failed. I'm not going to do my thing. And it, it fits with a more narrative story because it's not like we're building a dungeon crawler. It's not like a traditional D20 system where I roll a D20. If I get X number, I succeed. If I don't, I fail. And then if I fail, they're, depending on your DM, you may get a chance to be more narrative. So it, it fit more of telling a collaborative story versus a succeed, fail, very binary. You succeed, you fail, and then another die will say how much you succeeded or failed by. So I'm a more narrative DM. Uh, Dave is very much a narrative DM and storyteller. And Eugenia is definitely a very animated, lively, uh, narrative-driven storyteller. So it just fit because what we wanted to do was tell a story and not necessarily have to roll dice. There are times when I'm GMing, um, because I GM a Dragon Age game on Thursday nights, there are times when we may get through most of a three-hour episode and never touch any of the D6. Hell yeah. Very, I love that. Yeah, I mean, the story takes you where it needs to go. And like the mechanics come in when they are supposed to. There is nothing wrong with a, you know, long session in which everything is simply narrated through and, yeah. and character moments. Um, ooh, I love that. Um, that is incredible. And uh, there's something so exciting about like uh, the it just feels like this this incredible sense of adventure around like an amazing cast, tons of Dimension 20, friends of the fam, not only people behind the camera like B-Dave, but Christina Ariel, as you've said, um, and uh, uh, especially like exploring this new system. It's just intoxicating. It's so cool. Watching character creation at your guys' session zero was so amazing. <laughs> and then watching it leap into action within the first session, it's just so, so cool. Uh, it's also just a beautifully produced actual play. Like the, the production quality is incredible. Um, uh, active captions on the episodes as well, which is awesome. Um, so, yeah, so we, we do have a producer. Um... Glosson, oh God, I'm going to mess up their, their Twitter name, Glosson Gadgets of Goldheart Group is our producer. And she actually stays up super late over on the other side of the pond to produce our show. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Shout out, claps to that. Amazing. Um, so, so cool. Into the Motherlands. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, uh, and with that, we've been chugging right along for a second. I think we're going to go ahead and move into some audience questions here. Um, 
uh, uh, this is a great one. This uh, this question comes to us from Chair. Thanks, Chair. Hello, Chair. Hello, Chair. Uh, I was wondering what aspect of tabletop games appeals to you the most and how your experience with TTRPGs differs from other games, such as video games, et cetera. Um, you, and this is directed uh, specifically at you, Tanya. Uh, you do a lot of things, very cool things. And I was wondering what aspects you love about TTRPGs that keeps you coming back. Thank you, Chair. Um, so for me, the difference is I have far more control over an RPG, uh, you know, a, a tabletop RPG, because at least, you know, like as a player, depending on where the DM, GM, storyteller takes us, I can craft this whole narrative. I can give this character life versus a video game where it's like, here's your sandbox. Here's your X number of hours to enjoy this content. You may get to do stuff in side quests, but here's the story we're giving you. Um, and and the experience with TTRPGs, like I've had some amazing, just heartfelt, emotional moments with friends i've made so many friends like a lot of the people i i work with you christina dave you know all the people i'm working with all a lot of the people that i interact with on a daily basis are friends because of this industry you know people that you know are ride or die if they call me up right now and said hey i need a favor i'd be like what do you need i got you and that camaraderie with good people is what keeps me coming back because I had noped out RPGs for a long time. Um, years ago, it feels like 20 years ago, although everything feels like 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> it does. I mean, let's yeah, just call it what wrong. it is. Um, but, you know, Greg Tito would invite me on Dragon Talk and to talk about more about I Need Diverse Games and diversity work I was doing. And I mentioned, like, I hadn't played RPGs or I hadn't played specifically D&D since... 3.5 was out and, and 5e was just out at that point. And, you know, I was like, it's, I haven't got a group to play with. It's not welcoming. I don't just walk into a store. Um, Cause usually you get that kind of hark. Uh, a woman has entered the domain kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and then he showed me the, the 5e book with the iconic human was a black woman paladin. And I was like, sold, Give here's my money. Because um, representation matters. All the time I'd been looking at these books, nobody looked like me. Nobody looked like my friends. And, you know, the rules were were a lot different. I was able to pick it up a lot better. And, and what keeps me coming back is the collaboration. And especially with the pandemic we're living through, I can hop on a Zoom call. I can get into a a virtual setting and still have communication and still have camaraderie with friends. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of what I do is streamed. It is shared out on the internet, but I can still do a private game with friends if I want. I don't, and I can, and I can just have that. We're on the same wavelength. We're having fun. We're doing whatever, but also I get a chance to create like motherlands has, has brought back all the creative energy that I thought I'd lost for good. It's been a struggle with everything going on, everything, you know, and for those who don't know, my mom passed in March. It's just been a struggle. And so to have something like Motherlands, to come back to Rivals, to do Dragon Age, which is a property I love, and I get to just kind of run amok as a DM, 
having that energy and, and being with people I enjoy, that is the greatest feeling in the world for me. Oh, the uh, uh, a light lit in the heart. My goodness. Yeah, it's perfectly said. It's so beautiful. And yeah, it's like that ability to form community and you know the 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 romantic in me around the form of play that comes when you're building those collaborative stories mm-hmm. with people um i in in a funny way i feel like you know it the formal structure of like how you get to know people that idea of like how many siblings do you have where did you grow up I feel like the fastest insights I've ever gained into the beautiful inner soul of a person have always come bizarrely through play with them. There's something about seeing you play a made up person that shows me who you really are in like yeah. a beautiful, <laughs> like expedited way. It's counterintuitive, but it's really true. Um, yeah, and you and you also get to like experiment. There are things that I do in RPG I would never do in real life that are probably illegal. Um, <laughs> You know, I can be a vampire. I can go murder people in an RPG and, you know, I can get away with it versus pretty sure the police frown on actual murder. So. And I don't know if it's illegal, but I imagine if it's possible to turn into a vampire, that's probably against the law, at least somewhere. And, you know, I don't want to find out the hard way. Um, Yeah. uh, That's so, so fun. Yeah. And I think, too, that that like... um, Building that sense of community. And again, the, like you're saying, there's one of these funny things that I've been feeling a lot recently of like, um, the pandemic has us feeling very isolated. And I think there's this weird idea too, and I'm not sure if, if you'll agree with this or not or feel the same way, but um, there's this there's this thing of D&D and tabletop more broadly has allowed me to keep in touch as an adult with very old friends. And sometimes people will hear that and be like, wow, like you need a game to like keep you in touch with your old friends. And then there's a certain part of it's like, well, yeah, like life is hard. And as you're yeah. an, an adults have a lot of responsibilities and it is sadly a very real thing that through the hustle and grind of day-to-day life, trying to pay bills and stay ahead of your workload that like, there are little structures that might seem a little bit corny, you know, like, oh, like we're going to have a dinner party with some other, you know, like people that are like, oh, what an adult, what an adulting kind of thing to do. Yeah. Those structures are really significant. And I can point to a number of friendships that have stayed very active in my life through the confines of having a game with people. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the power of play is amazing. And it's something we're weaned off of as adults. Yes. Yes, very much so. There's there's an active kind of pressure to be like, time to stop being this playful. Um, but there is something about these these games that you really can just, again, live out those fantasies, be in wild circumstances, form these memories with your friends. Uh, yeah. it's, be- oh, it's beautiful. Um, uh, um, uh, oh, this is a, uh, a great question. This one comes from Hadley DeBoss. Hadley DeBoss, thanks, Hadley. Um, uh, when talking about diverse games, whether video games or TTRPGs, 
a lot of emphasis uh, is on the DM or company to diversify games to let POC, especially uh, WOC, and other marginalized folks be heroes. Uh, but is there anything you can do as a player to help out at the table? Thanks, Hadley. Oh, absolutely. So if you're at a table, one, um, I'm going to advocate for a session zero. Um, always have a session zero because one, it'll help you get to know the people you're going to play with. And this, you know, obviously if you're at whenever, again, whenever we can go to conventions, I mean, it's hard to do that at a convention, but if it's going to be an ongoing thing, if it's going to be something like rivals or dimension 20 or something where you're going to be in front of an audience, or if you're just going to stream it on your Twitch channel, cause you're still showing the world what you're doing as a player, consider how are you interacting with the character once you get to know who that character is? How are you interacting with the player? Are you trying to bring real world things like racism to the table? Think about that and think about how it will affect the people that you're playing with. Um, I was on a panel last year at PAX Unplugged and I had a moment where I'm very glad I could not leap across the table. <laughs> Because, well, I was on a panel and it was, I'm not, I'm failing to remember the title, but Eugenio was um, to my left. Our friend Lauren Urban, who was moderating, was to the right. And someone at the far end of the table was talking about, they just blase were talking about, oh, in this game where I had slaves. And you know the look you get on your face where you're like, I'm in public. I cannot let what I'm thinking out on my face. But I, and they did not show my face in that moment, thankfully, because I'm sure it would have been like, what in the entire blue fuck did you just say? Um, but things like that, where you don't have to bring slavery into a game, you don't have to bring oppression into a game, especially where it's fantasy. All the things we see about racism between like elves and dwarves and all this other Tolkien-esque bullshit that we've been raised with. Get that out of your table. You don't have to have that in your setting. You don't have to have it at your table. And, you know, and if you decide to play outside your experience, think really carefully about why are you going to play a character or a caricature? Because I get a lot of people who go, well, I want to be a black blah, blah, blah. Is this okay? And first off, don't ask someone who's not, who's someone who is like black, female, person of color, marginalized, queer, et cetera. We can't give you permission to do anything because I can tell you no, and you can turn around and still do it at your table anyway, so there's no point in asking me. Or the general, not not the other white folks at the table that you may be asking. Um, but be mindful of things. Be mindful of your language. Try not to be ableist, because um, you never know someone could have an invisible disability and doesn't want to disclose that. Um, you know, we, we can definitely get away from assault as a backstory, or as a trope, or as a mechanic. Too many women I know have stopped playing where a male DM has very definitely put in, oh, well, this character just got assaulted and it's totally fine. And they don't think about who's at the table. So as players, think about the environment you're setting, the tone you're setting. And if someone else is doing something that makes you uncomfortable or you, let's say we're either on a stream or something or we're physically at a table and you see that person have a reaction, you can X card and go, that makes me uncomfortable. Talk to that player. Let them know that they're not alone. And then when you uh, hopefully debrief after each session, because that's another thing we should do, go, hey, that wasn't cool. That's here. I'm not comfortable with that. And if they go, well, you're not black. You're not a woman. You're not fill in the blank marginalization. 
I don't have to be to be uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. I should just not have to sit at a table where assault or racism or fill in the blank is is a plot point. That should never be something. It's never something I want as a player because I play these games to get away from reality. Mm-hmm. So if you bring slavery, etc., as a player, as a DM, as a company, I am not going to feel safe. And not in the oh my god, I, I I'm going to go hover in a corner for an hour. It's more of a this you did nothing but anyone like me when you built this game. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that's there's something really important there. I think too that that um, first of all. I forget a lot because I think that when you are in a position where like for you and me, we are in a position in our lives where we play, have the privilege of playing almost a hundred percent with people we love, trust, respect, and admire. Right. And that's not true for every member of this hobby. And it's important to remember that from time to time, people are playing with like a crew of people they don't know very well or people that they, I want to just say like, if you're listening to this and you're, judging your instincts about a group of people that you don't necessarily trust with covering a particular topic in their game, you are allowed to act on your instinct. Like Mm -hmm. you have permission to trust your gut when it tells you, I just don't trust this group of people. Because I see a lot of players will do that thing of like, well, I don't want to upset anybody or I don't want to step any toes. So I don't want to be that person speaking up on an issue of comfortability or sensitivity, you have permission to speak up. You have permission to, and you have permission also to just trust your gut if you're like, because I think I've, I've heard of some people who are like, oh, like we we had an element of our world building reflect real world issues because I was playing with a group of people that I really trusted to handle that with sensitivity and grace. And then I was at a different table where I could have said something and I didn't quite trust those people. Mm. And I like, you are allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to change your mind within the same game. You are allowed to, to like, if you have a session zero and you say things you're not comfortable with and later you go, actually the thing that's happening right now, I do kind of want to, after the fact, add to the list of things I'm not comfortable with. You are allowed to speak up in that moment and say so right then and there. Um, I think that there's a a tremendous pressure on people um, to silence their their inner voice that it wants to express discomfort for the purpose of like smoothing things along and not being a bother. It is never a bother to voice discomfort because two things are gonna happen. Your friends are gonna see that you're uncomfortable and they're gonna be good friends and accommodate you in that moment because nothing's more important than the actual feelings of the people at that table. Or they're gonna have a weird reaction, in which case the silver lining is, you found out that these people don't have your best interests at heart and can now act accordingly. Um, So I think definitely don't don't be critical of your own inner voice that is trying to give voice to things that are making you uncomfortable at the table. Um, uh, Try as best as you can to give voice to that in the moment, because again, Hopefully the people are going to respond by immediately like respecting that. And if they don't, better that you have that information earlier rather than later that these people are not respecting what you are laying down as your boundaries. Um, uh, yeah, and again, like as a player at the table, uh, and I love to Tanya what you said about like you don't have to 
have membership. You you advocating for something that makes you uncomfortable, even if you are not a member of X group that is maybe like vulnerable in that moment at the gaming table. Number one, who cares? If it makes you uncomfortable, it makes you uncomfortable. And then number two, you could also be potentially speaking up for, like as, as Tanya said, someone that has an invisible disability at the table. Um, you could be speaking up on behalf of someone in that moment and providing safety and comfort for them by interceding in that moment and setting that boundary. Um, uh, hell yeah. Um, ah, it, very, very important advice going out into the world um uh awesome um uh uh oh this is a this is a wild question i love this hold on oh dear Ooh. um this one's from when thanks when um i'm a teacher and i've seen the skills from pedagogical training and dming align pretty easily for example, lesson planning is a lot like planning a session. You set an objective, an intro, some lecture, and some activity. Only instead of a dungeon and some dragons, it's teaching them about cell respiration and human homeostasis. Uh, uh, my question is this, what kinds of skills from outside of gaming have you seen uh, uh, useful uh, use for as a G, have you seen use for as a GM or vice versa? This is a very sad moment where I have to look when in the in the camera and tell them um, I don't have any skills outside of GMing. I've been doing this too long. <laughs> I'm like one of those weird dune space navigators where I've eaten too much of the spice melange and now I'm just a big old space worm and I only have one thing I can do. Um, yes. That's <laughs> not true. That's <laughs> so not true. Oh, shucks. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's one of my favorite things is people that come to GMing and bring an outside skill or objective or some other. And by the way, that's like always going to be true. Uh, I remember in a very early adventure, uh, early adventuring Academy, Brian Murphy, who's a cast member on dimension 20 um, talked about like encounter design and specifically from like his backstory of like the epic role playing games like Final Fantasy and encounter design in that way um, and and sort of juxtaposing that against like the diff like everyone has a different base of references and different skill sets when they come to GMing and whatever your like area of interest is I feel like you can absolutely find a way to make that not just like a session you can like formulate a whole campaign around your area of interest. Um, uh, this is a, a far out piece of, um, like this is a weird thread because it's very much not tabletop. Um, but like when I learned the backstory behind NK Jemison and, and how like the fifth season came about as like fantasy through the lens of a passion and interest in science, specifically through this like, a story behind that like whatever your passion or sphere is you can lend that to your world design lend that to uh uh your campaign lend that to your character interactions and relationships um i'm trying to think of like specific examples there uh, um well you know not so much for me but i i'm thinking of sharif sharif jackson because mm -hmm. you know, like 
for those who don't know, he he's done a video series called Gaming Looks Good. He also teaches math. That is, he went, he left corporate gig to start his own tutoring business. And those skills definitely show up in the seasons that he has uh, uh, DM'd because, oh my God, puzzles and math. Like, there was one where basically I realized much later he was having to solve a Rubik's Cube. Or he was using, um, was the remember the Simon Says toys? Yes, absolutely. It was basically a Simon Says toy, but in a puzzle. And, right, see? And it's just like, oh my God, that's what he was having us do. And, you know, like using puzzles, using all of those skills of critical thinking. And, you know, and I think as a DM, the, the quote unquote soft skills that people mock are always going to serve you the best in that chair because you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to read people and pick up on cues. Uh, hopefully people are giving cues mm-hmm. and critical thinking and be able to collaborate. And those are the skills that I don't see a lot with some people. They go, I want to be the DM so I can tell the story I want to tell. Then you go write a novel, you go write a short story, you go write some fan fiction because railroading your players isn't good GMing. And you can tell when someone has gone through the elaborate thing of whatever it is they wanted to make. And then they're mad that the players do not cotton on to their grand plan and no one's having fun because somehow the players did not read the GM's mind for this grand scheme that they've plotted out two years in advance because they think somehow this game is still going to be running in two years when they never talk to their players. They don't go or they don't make sure everyone has kind of a spotlight moment, making sure people are comfortable and safe. And I know people go, oh, it's it's D&D, it's whatever. I'm here to like kill Knowles. Okay, you can kill Knowles, but you can still have fun while you're doing it. <laughs> Uh, I, that is such powerful advice. And I've, I've said versions of this in the past. I do think like there are a lot of, uh, you know, I, there are parts of me that really don't like the term dungeon master because it implies a hierarchical relationship that I think is bullshit and not, not accurate to the best running of the game. Um, and I think, but also there are a lot of systems that use the term storyteller, which I also think can be problematic in a way because the skill of the person who is, whatever you call that like person at the head of the table who is setting scenes and stuff like that. I I have like written comics and written screenplays and the skill set I use as someone who is literally telling a story is so different than the part of your brain that's lighting up when you are running a game for people. Like, I would say that it, as someone who has been an improviser and as someone who has been a writer, DMing is a lot more like being an improviser than it is like being a writer, right? No matter how cool your prep is, like you're saying, no matter, you could, okay, cool, you made a really pretty railroad, so what? Like, that is not what the skill set here is really about. Weirdly, I feel like the the best sort of like analogy I can make for a what that GM position is really about is you should be a storyteller insofar as you have a really broad and vast and deep understanding of the tropes and beats of storytelling, such that from moment to moment, 
as you are improvising with your player characters, the choices you are making help build something that will feel like an epic tale, right? Uh, but that fundamentally what you're doing in that moment is being present with your players and listening fully to the choices they are making and doing yep. your best to honor them and what their characters are going through, um, sort of moment to moment. Um, but I do, you know, to, to, to circle back to the question, I think that, again, those soft skills are really, really important. Communication, listening, honoring, and again, having that constant emotional barometer for like, how are my friends doing? Are they having a good time? Are they engaged? Has someone not gotten enough spotlight? Do people need a break? Do they need a snack? <laughs> you know, like, right. I often need a snack. And um, uh, in fact, I need a snack soon. Um, but the important thing <laughs> is that you have that uh, awareness at the table. Um, but then within that too, I think even if those skills that you're bringing are really crunchy, there is almost no skill set that a person could bring up that if they were to base a campaign around it, I wouldn't get super psyched. Lou Wilson ran and uh, is running this incredible campaign that is all about like wilderness and mountaineering and has a lot of like research and skill stuff about like how you summit mountains, like base camps and huh. supplies and like supply wagons. And you would think like, I don't know, it's just got, it just gets you so excited. So again, to, to the asker's question, like, yes, like whatever your skill set is, bringing that to your game will only serve to bring it like a specificity um, uh, in, in the exact way that like all of the, the geology and like physics stuff in like the Broken Earth trilogy does. Like mm -hmm. specific knowledge, all it serves to do is add that depth and richness of lore to whatever your setting is. And if you are coming to running tabletop from an area of expertise, I guarantee you that all that that area could do would be to enrich whatever that world is. A hundred percent. Um, uh, uh, the, let's see, there's other great stuff here. Uh, this next question comes to us from, uh, Ariel. Thanks, Ariel. Um, hey y'all, I'm a new GM and while I'm finding RP and reacting on the fly is coming naturally to me, I'm having a much harder time wrapping my head around battle mechanics. There's just so much to keep track of. Boy, howdy, you ain't kidding. Any <laughs> advice? Uh, any advice for getting a handle on running battles with monsters and NPCs from the other side of the screen? This is a great question, Ariel. Tanya, I've been doing this since I was 10 years old. I fuck this <laughs> up constantly. Be kind to yourself. I swear to God, the bane of my existence is concentration checks. The, oh my the, God. Like, remember, like, I will get to the end of the battle and be like, oh shit, um... Roll five concentration checks. You took so much damage and you had that spell on the whole time. Um, whoops. Whoops. Um, there's a lot to keep track of. Um, uh, the, the best, the, I feel like this is, this is a great question and there's probably a lot of like tangible answers to this that are like small tactical tips and tricks. And then there's probably some like broader theory answer stuff here. Oh God, I, theory, I'm the wrong person. <laughs> Because I have, I so I have a terrible memory, which is probably not great for a GM. So Google Docs and I are best friends. And honestly, I mean, thankfully you can't actually see my desk because it's a disaster. I actually keep a notepad and paper. 
and I will like well I'll have it in our Zoom chat at least for rivals, but I will actually write down kind of what's in the encounter. Um, our our initiative order at least for D and D and other systems is different, and you know just kind of and then I will actually like flip the paper over and keep a track of this monster took X damage if that was it. And then just, I will manually do it. And you know, the advantage of doing everything online, no one can see me like frantically writing on a piece of paper. Um, but you know, like the way that I do it, like for Dragon Age is that I've got, I've got a Google sheet per session with what we did last time, if there was combat, what they ran into. And then I have kind of what I'd like to hit on in the next episode and if there's going to be combat, so like our season finale for Dragon Age is coming up, and I've already told the players, brush up on combat, because we've been so narrative, we haven't had a lot of combat. And that includes the DM. So, you know, I've just got a list of, here's what I plan to happen, here's X character, I know they'll have so much life, XP, whatever we're calling it in Dragon Age, because, again, terrible memory. And ideally, at this level depending on what people do, it should only take X number of turns. But I also ran that Infernal Goose Encounter, bumped up the HP, just ran it for some people, and they still took it out in like a one full round and a half of combat. So, and that was just one monster I had to keep track of. Yes. Um, and I would say if you're a newer DM and this isn't faulting you, you don't have to have a giant encounter when there's combat have one or two creatures and you know again copy and paste google docs have it off to the side or if you're meeting in person somehow and it's safe have a printout of oh there's a gang of 20 monsters they have 10 hp each and have them go in clusters oh these three henchmen try to gang up on one person yeah because when you're newer it's just a lot to keep track of i mean i've been doing this a while it's still a lot to keep track of so i would honestly say Smaller encounters so you get comfortable. Keep pen and paper where you can write stuff down and Google Docs, notes, whatever you're using off to the side. And, you know, just don't use tools that are out there. Don't feel like you got to keep it just all in your head. No one can do that. Oh, boy, could I not agree more. First of all, let me also preach the gospel of Google Docs here. C Command F is the only reason I've ever run a session successfully <laughs> in a given, tr truly, because I I remember moving myself when I was when I years ago, uh, uh, you know, way prior to Dimension Twenty, just just in my home games, I would have paper notes and paper stuff and all the, a lot like most of my stuff living on paper and. You know, there'd be moments where I'm like, okay, I'm looking for an index card somewhere in this basement. Oh, no. Right? Oh, dear. Yeah, and it would just be, and then things grind to a halt. You're like spent, like, okay, everyone look under the cushions. A nightmare, right? Um, Command F is your friend. Uh, the ability to find keywords, to look for a, a, a little PC name, to, you know, there's like a, a tremendous amount of great resources at your beck and call when you move to that digital thing. And again, like, yes, there are resources that are, are paid resources that definitely like, believe me, 
your boy using D&D Beyond all day, every day to make those homebrew magic items and throw yeah. stuff in there. And those systems are great. But even before getting to stuff that you have to either like, that, again, going back to access, you would need a subscription for, just things like Google Docs, using um, your own stat blocks, uh, organizing your materials and your notes. Um, I think initiative on scrap paper is a great thing. I have a little initiative tracker that I use where it's initiatives in order, and I have a little legend for status conditions because I will always forget like a status condition unless it's showing up in the initiative for that creature, like marking down in an initiative block being like, remember, this guy's stunned. So when it gets back to his initiative, he ain't doing shit. He's stunned right now, right? Like uh, all he's gonna do is make another saving throw. Um, so things like that are very helpful. Um, and again, I think in, in combat, uh, remembering to give yourself as many tools as possible, because if you're putting all of that on your head, yes, you might successfully remember all the rules, but are you gonna remember all the rules and remember to narrate cool moments and do bits with your friends? Because the combat is also a scene. It should still have the narrative feel of like, yeah, we're like, yes, we're crunching a bunch of numbers right now, but also like, you just decapitated that demon. That's cool as hell. What was that like? You know, right. like, let's remember that this is a part of the story we're telling. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Uh, uh, scrap paper for tracking initiative and hit points and things like that. Um, uh, you know, I've been using Roll20 a lot in the pandemic and that's been an incredible thing to be able to record damage on an enemy token as opposed to the horrifying world where I remember, you know, battles in 3.5 back in the day where I'm like, okay, there's 30 soldiers. Um, oh boy. <laughs> they've taken various amounts of damage. I have damage totals and I have miniatures and I'm not sure which of these totals goes to which of these miniatures. So finding a system to like keep track of that stuff is I think very, very uh, important. Um, uh, other like general, so I, again, I think like, yes, using digital tools to the best of your ability to help you uh, keep track of that stuff. For me, if there's stuff that I know I forget a lot, like I like concentration checks and stuff like that, um, it's about finding those little tools to help you. Like I started to have a little area where I would keep spell cards on the thing in front of me for the active concentration spells that were running. So that I would have a, vis a visual cue right in front of me. Um, another thing that I do to streamline battle uh, is whenever I can, I will have a index card taped up behind the screen that has every player character's armor class, hit points, spell save DC or ability save DC, passive perception and passive insight. Um, just in a row so that I don't have to ask them and wait for that and yada yada. Um, and then again, I think more broadly, having said all that, if a rule slides, if something else scoots away, remember that like this is a magical world. So like if you forgot to make someone make a concentration check, the world is not broken. They just succeeded on that check. Yeah, they got hit for a lot of damage, but guess what? They held on to it. Good for them, right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, not, a lot of these rules, if they slip or slide or fall off of the radar, are not actually going to destroy 
the like reality of the fictional world that you are in for the most part, right? Um, yeah. uh, so I think be be kind and generous to yourself. And again, remember that I would say judge for yourself and you can consult your players about this too, to the degree that a rule is making you have more fun, good. If the bookkeeping of your battles is actively detracting from the fun at the table, I think there's merit in going, how much fun are we really having with concentration, gang? How much fun are we right. really, you know, like, how much fun are, I remember like, I've never played at a table that asked for criticals to be confirmed, which used to be a rule back in 3.5 of like, like, yeah, you rolled a nat 20, but you have to confirm it. It's like, no, that's so unfun. Let's not do that. It just adds needless crunch. Let's get rid of it. So conversations with your players about, is this part of battle bookkeeping actually making us have a good time? Uh, and if the answer is no, maybe toss it. Yeah, because I think one thing people need to remember, because Sharif and I talked about this before he DM'd, because again, he had never DM'd before he did so on Rivals. Those books are a guide. They are not, they're not the tablets up on high. You know, no one is going to show up behind you and say, you are not allowed to play D&D anymore. They're a guide. Go play and enjoy yourself. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I like combat, but if every session was combat, it would get, A, it'd be boring, it would take forever. And B, you know, and this is, again, thinking in terms of people watching you play your sessions. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, you're like, oh my God, they're back in the dungeon. Are they not done yet? Yes, absolutely. It's like, yeah, the 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 tedium can become very real. Finding that balance is uh, the key to having fun at your table. Um, this uh, this awesome next question comes to us from Tanaya. Thank you, Tanaya. Um, as a DM, I try to do my best to make sure the settings I create are as diverse as possible. Do you have any tips on incorporating diversity into a genre like high fantasy, where traditional source material often excludes people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, and other marginalized groups? Uh, this is a great question. We've already hit on this earlier, talking about the kind of Tolkien effect of the sort of overbearing whiteness of a lot of like high fantasy source material. Um, yeah, there are so many incredible and awesome sources um, to take as, I think, like source material and inspiration for imagining high fantasy differently. Um, uh, and I think, too, that there's there's sort of within this question, because the, the question asked tonight is sort of saying, like, incorporating diversity into a genre like high fantasy, where traditional source material often excludes uh, people of color, the LGBTQ community, and other marginalized groups. Um, there's also a question here of like, um, you know, to uh, like, I would say, A, high fantasy can be whatever you want it to be. And then B, also a, a given system doesn't necessarily mean you have to do high fantasy. Like a lot of what Dimension 20 does, we used the 5e system to create a modern urban fantasy setting in the Unsleeping City. Uh, so I think you can kind of go a lot of directions here. Uh, but Tanya, what would your advice be for someone that wants to diversify from the kind of, you know, source material we see a lot of in the high fantasy genre? I mean, the key word here is fantasy. It is all made up. So if you decide the elves in my in my Bryn Shander, and I don't think there's even elves in Bryn Shander, but that's just something I threw out there. The elves in Bryn Shander are actually like all shades of glorious brown, and they're not drow. Mm -hmm. 
you as the person telling the story can say that. Um, you can also just say, you know what? The drow aren't evil, and some of them live above ground. I, I am changing this. I'm doing what I want to do with them. Because, again, these are guides. This is what the power of homebrew is about. And, you know, and, and lots of you don't sue me, play other games beside D&D. Um, Blue Rose is a intentionally very queer setting where actually being straight is not the default. Um, I think being bi or queer of, of some manner is the default setting. And it's full of romance and fun and it can be queer and it can be as R or X rated as you like, because it does veer that way. Play indie games or, you know, look at, look at the things. Like if you love something like the wire and that's an extreme, why can't you use 5e rules to transport people to wire into a setting and, and run a, a short campaign? Or I've declared that, you know, elves, because they're outside a lot, they're just all brown by default. There's no such thing as pale white fair, fair elves. Orcs are not automatically savages and stupid and brutes. They are scholars. They are whatever. Turn all the tropes on their head. No, Again, no one's going to show up and take your books away. Um, and if you do that stuff and your players don't like it, just go, well, this is all made up. So I made this up. And it's not going to ruin the game for you if... An orc is a scholar from, you know, the Arcane Brotherhood versus you find him gnawing on the leg bone of some deer he just killed, you know? It's not going to ruin the game for you, or it shouldn't ruin the game for you. So sit down and think about what is it that you're missing? What can you put in there? And uh, Jeremy Crawford had a, has a great example about this of when he talks about, like, an innkeeper. It's always an innkeeper and his wife. He's like an innkeeper and his husband. Yeah. Just one noun change yes. makes a difference. Uh, I think that is profoundly important for people to hear and internalize, especially, look, I I understand that, you know, you and I are coming at this as people who have played this game forever. And I understand why people are intimidated by the idea of homebrew when they first start. Because, look, I, I am the worst person in the world when it comes to following the instructions. True story, a little bit of a tangent. Uh, I lived in an apartment with a bunch of dear beloved friends who I also played D&D with. Um, uh, uh, Griffin Johnson, my brother, Connor Gillespie, Jack Covell, uh, who's also been on Adventuring Academy. We had a, a downstairs apartment of a bunch of our friends who uh, uh, we had a bunch of our friends downstairs, all women who had a dinner party like once every week or two weeks. And they were like, hey, we're going to make dinner for both apartments. You guys just have to make dessert. And we were like, great, we're on it. We went to the store, got a packet of brownie mix. We said, we're going to make brownies. Brownies rock. Let's do this. And we had, uh, and then we got home and we're aghast with horror when we recognized that the instructions were for a rectangular pan and our brownie tin was circular. And therefore the instruction guide for how many minutes to put it in the oven uh, wouldn't be exact. Uh, oh so, so, so 
it was time for dinner. The girls came up, knocked on the door, opened the door to find us nowhere near having started the brownies. Instead, we had a huge piece of paper out and we're looking up online how to bisect a line to do the geometry for how you would convert the instructions for a rectangular <laughs> The pained look on your face. Um, the dumbest thing in the world. So dumb. That, sound, that sounds like a sitcom moment. <laughs> 100% true story. We were yelled at so, so powerfully in that moment. We were like, we didn't know how long to put the brownies in. And uh, my friend Trina was like, you put a fork in it after a little while. She was like, the most difference in minutes is like six to 10 minutes. Put it in for six minutes and start jabbing a fork in there. What's wrong? With in any case, all oh my this God. All of that is to say, we wanted to get it right. And I so, all of that is to say, I understand why someone who has just bought their first player's handbook would want to do it by the book. What you have to know, and again, know there's a bunch of awesome creative work that goes into D&D, World of Darkness, the, uh, the indie RPG, is all kinds of great stuff. There's a ton of awesome creative work that goes in there. Messing with the flavor of the world design is so different from like, if you go into the game and you're like, ah, hit points aren't a thing anymore. You will probably have a dramatically different yeah. experience of playing the game. But all of that world building stuff, that is yours to do with what you will. If you wanna say that something is a different way, th there is nothing that is gonna to happen to the inner mechanics of the game based on you making the world reflect the kind of world you and your players wanna live in, right? Yep. Uh, um, and I know that that can feel intimidating as you are trying to learn the rules of a new game, but I promise you the parts of the game that are mechanically distinct really are kind of isolatable, right? Like armor class, hit points, spell slots, that stuff is the stuff that you can sort of go, okay, that's gonna be what it is. All that flavor stuff is yours to change as you wish and to build the world as you would want it to be. Um, uh, and within that, I would say, yes, like Tanya's saying, like shape the world to whatever you want it to be. And I think also like um, there are so many amazing resources out there to envision those words. Because the other part of Tanaya's question is really about like, what is the source material I can use? To which I would say there are like amazing, what I know we've already talked about NK Jemison and the thing, but like Broken Earth or uh, uh, the, the like looking at other tabletops like Into the Motherlands as great Afrofuturist sci-fi. Um, uh, shout out to uh, awesome podcast, Three Black Halflings, that has had Christina Ariel and Lou Wilson on it, who are in a kind of uh, Afrocentric fantasy campaign, uh, I believe called the Wagadu Chronicles is the name of the setting. There's a ton of awesome resources out there to reimagine fantasy outside of the kind of Tolkien model um, uh, that are waiting for you to make the fantasy world again that you and your players would most want to live in. Yep. Um, hell yes. Um, uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, this was a great question from uh, Ganny Dolph the Great. Ganny Dolph oh, the Great. God. Woo! Uh, how 
does one end a campaign? In the few years that I've been DMing, very few campaigns, adventures have had a proper conclusion and instead they fizzled out of existence because of scheduling conflicts and lack of player interest to continue on. What are your methods in building a proper adventure without it dragging on for too long? Um, well, mm. Ganny Dolph, I would say a great way to make sure that your campaigns end is to uh, have them be produced by dropout.tv and have a set number of shoot dates. That seems to work for me uh, pretty well. <laughs> um, short of that glib non-answer, um, yeah, the, the trick to like ending campaigns. Um, Tanya, in your experience, is there a difference between like your, the home games you've played versus the things you've done for actual play? Uh, in terms of like finding endings? Because immediately to me, my head is going to like, this is a very complex question because things can end without really ending. They can have definitive endings. Things can end and then restart again later. Um, um, it depends. So the last home game I was in was, oh God, it was a 3-5 campaign. And we got to level 22. We played like for three years in person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just like as we got to that epic level, everyone, so we just kind of all started like resolving our own personal threads. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was this kind of last hurrah, big feast of we vanquished the big bad. We've all kind of done our inner personal journey and, and satisfied those needs. And and it ended in a in a in a good way. Um, and I haven't been in a home games. I take that back. I was in a home game. It did not go well. The DM was very much a playing favorites kind of person, and we had a Leroy Jenkins that was the mage, but they wanted to pick up literally everything, whether or not they could use it. So that was a. It ended because I was like, deuces, I'm out because this isn't fun. Um, but in terms of actual play stuff. Initially, the Dragon Age campaign I was doing, or I am doing, we were just going to do one season, like 10 episodes, we're good. And then we realized we really like this world we're building, and it's like, do we want to do a second season? And then it helped me shift kind of like what I was doing. So things that are finite, and like with um, Rivals, yes, we have eight seasons, but every DM story is different. So I know that within these 10 episodes of season eight, I'm telling a finite story and it'll pick back up if we get another season. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm thinking about, do you want your players to kind of ride off in the sunset or do people, maybe people never want to play again or someone has to drop out because of life or whatever. You know, it's, I know I keep saying this, comes back to communication of, Checking in with your players will help you do this. So if you think people aren't interested, it'll suck to hear as a DM, but it's a chance to either go, okay, well, what don't you like? What can we change? Or people decide, oh, I'm not feeling this. Life is keeping me busy. I, I think I want to stop playing. You can plan out a conclusion that doesn't feel like everybody's kind of went their separate ways and nobody likes each other anymore. So it's always going to come back to, to communicating and going, how do we want the story to end? Or do we just do kind of a wrap up and this is what happened and explain to people if it's a stream show and it's not planned to end anytime soon, you know, life gets in the way, what have you, we're, or we're gonna take a break or, you know, it's ending for now, but there's always the opportunity to come back. I love that. And I think I fully agree too. Cause this question really, there's two separate things going on in this question, which are, are, are sort of like, 
to it is okay for campaigns to fizzle. I like I I have had an incredible amount of good fortune in my life of like finishing campaigns and having very long running campaigns. But let's not get it twisted. Vast majority of things I've run fizzled out before they came to a satisfying conclusion. It's the nature of a hobby in which human life and IRL concerns and adulthood get in the way. You know, I ran a, the, the, I had a campaign that I ran for years in college that had huge epic arc to it and people had leveled up to like almost 20th level, fizzled. Fizzled after going strong for like five years. Um, wow. You know, and like those characters are just forever in amber perched at the like third act break of their story. Um, and I think that that doesn't necessarily bother. There's something I kind of, again, have like a romantic romanticization of that feeling of like, well, I would hate to do like a, okay, look, it's pissing me off that these characters haven't concluded their story. Let's just do a quick 20 minute wrap up. Like I would almost rather have the Fantasia, like never ending story-esque thing of like, they are, the characters have whatever's gonna happen in their fantasy world will happen. We just haven't played it yet. Um, but I would say to the other part of your question, which is like, how do I keep up um, so there's two things, right? Like you, the suggestion of the question asker is like, because my campaigns keep fizzling out, um, I should probably be planning shorter campaigns. I, I don't know that I agree with that premise. It's not necessarily true that just because you've had some campaigns fizzle out that your campaigns were all going for too long. Um, I've started so many more campaigns than I've finished. And the long, I've had a, a 10 year plus long home game that when I started it, I had no idea that that was gonna be the one that lasted. So it wasn't like, wow, this is the one. It just is the one that has kept going. So I don't think there's anything wrong on your part of starting these adventures in a way that feels epic and that they could go on forever because you never know. One day you might start the one that goes on forever. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe you know, uh, uh, it's good that you didn't try to find a way to like make it short and sweet. That being said, my advice, if you want to do short and sweet campaigns, sort of like we do on Dimension Twenty, is um, uh, have sort of a set number of sessions in mind so that you can manage pacing as you're going along, right? Um, because that's something that a DM really can be helpful with is that idea of like managing pacing and you know amount of time spent in a certain scene um hell yeah well gang that's been uh, the time has zoomed by uh uh what an incredible uh, incredible time uh tanya a pleasure and honor and a delight to have you and thank you for sharing your wisdom perspective and expertise with us here today it has been truly a joy to have you on this is fun. And, you know, I, I miss you. I miss getting out to L.A. and seeing people like all of us miss people. But it's it's weird because I'm a total introvert, but I'm like, oh, my God, I miss people so much. <laughs> I miss you, too. We will have time in either L.A. or Chicago again one day at the end of this uh, horrifying pandemic. It is a, a brighter day is coming. Yes. Um, 
Uh, tons of love and gratitude to our amazing guest, Tanya DePass. Uh, from everybody here at Dimension 20, wishing all of you well at home. We will see you next time on Adventuring Academy. Ah! <laughs>